0: This is Monday Matinee on the Mutual Audio Network. Come on, let's all go to the lobby. Because people are staring at us listening to these shows while we're in the theater.
1: The following audio drama is rated PG for parental guidance.
0: Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. This is Charles C. Shaw speaking. KTSA is honored this evening by the presence in our studios of two great men. The Honorable H.G. Wells, world-famous British historian, author, and student of world affairs, and Mr. Orson Welles, the genius of stage, screen, and radio. This is the first time that Mr. H.G. Wells and Mr. Orson Welles have appeared together. In fact, they met for the first time only yesterday here in San Antonio. But this is not the first time that their names have been linked. Two years ago, Mr. Orson Welles adapted Mr. H.G. Wells' book, War of the Worlds, for radio purposes, and you know the rest. Revising the story somewhat, Mr. Orson Welles depicted an invasion of the United States by men from Mars, Although he explained at numerous times during the program that it was fictitious, the country at large was frightened almost out of its wits. Men called radio stations, offering to enlist against the Martians. Others were panic-stricken. The realism of the production, frightening though it was, was a tribute to Mr. Orson Welles' genius. And thus the name of Wells, H. G. W. E. L. L. S. and Orson W. E. L. L. E. S. became linked. Mr. H. G. Wells, in the opinion of many, is the world's most famous man of letters. He has come to San Antonio to address the United States Brewers Association. And Mr. Orson Wells is here for a town hall forum address Wednesday. In this meeting of great minds, I feel rather inconspicuous. And the less I have to say, the better you listeners will like it.
2: Now, wait a minute. I, I
3: see something on top of the cylinder. Uh, no, it's uh, nothing but a shadow. Now, the troops are on uh, surrounding the impact
2: crater. 7,000 armed men <laughs> closing in on an old metal tube. Uh, wait, uh that wasn't a shadow, it's something moving. Solid metal. Kind of a shield-like affair, rising up out of the cylinder. It's going higher and higher. Why, it's it's standing on legs. Actually rearing up on a sort of metal framework. Taller than a house. Now it's reaching above the trees, and the searchlights are on it. Hold on!
4: Ladies and gentlemen, I have a grave announcement to make. Incredible as it may seem, both the observations of science and the evidence of our own eyes and ears lead to the inescapable assumption that those strange beings are the vanguard of an invading army from the planet Mars.
1: Welcome to Reimagined Radio, a program about radio storytelling. I'm Jack Armstrong. With each episode, we combine dialogue, sound effects, and music to engage your listening imagination. This episode is no different, and here to tell you
3: about it is John Barber, producer and host. Thank you, Jack. Hello, everyone. Welcome. It's October anniversary of the most legendary radio story ever told the war of the worlds four times now to celebrate this anniversary we have presented our own retelling of this classic story this year we look behind the story and share some new information for example we began our program with an introduction by Charles C Shaw announcer for KTSA radio San Antonio Texas about a conversation between H.G. Wells, author of The War of the Worlds, and Orson Welles, director and star of the radio adaptation. The conversation was recorded just before Halloween, 1940, two years after the initial broadcast of The War of the Worlds. We'll hear that conversation later in the program. The War of the Worlds, the radio adaptation by Orson Welles in the Mercury Theater on the Air, is alleged to have caused mass confusion among its listeners through its use of realistic-sounding news bulletins and other storytelling techniques. Although the War of the Worlds is called the best, it was not the first. Earlier experiments with radio storytelling may have influenced Orson Welles and his radio storytelling. We'll explore some examples in this episode of Reimagined Radio, originating from KXRW-FM, Vancouver, Washington's community radio station. We thank them for their support. And we thank you for joining us as Reimagined Radio presents The War of the Worlds, Possible Influences. In 1938, radio storytelling was new, full of promise, but untested. On Halloween Eve, 30 October, Orson Welles and the Mercury Theatre on the Air used authentic-sounding break-in news announcements, some seemingly live on location, to advance the narration of their radio dramatization of the H.G. Wells novel, The War of the Worlds. The result was confusion and chaos. Some called it panic, about the invasion of Earth by beings from the planet Mars. What was the first hope in your head
5: that something was wrong? Have you made any specific changes in any problems that
0: were scheduled, such as next week, for instance?
5: Have you altered your plan for future problems in any
0: way as a result of this incident? Do you think that this will cause uh, the curbing of uh, radio
3: bulletins on the air today?
6: Mr. Wells, why did you use local town?
3: The next morning, the star and director, Orson Welles, was summoned to the Columbia Broadcasting Building in New York City to explain himself to reporters.
5: Do you think, Mr. Welles, that you might have taken unfair advantage of the public in using a method as a conveyance for authentic news? I don't believe that I have since. It is not a method original with me. It is used by many radio programs. I am terribly shocked by the effect it's had. I do not believe that the method is original with me or, or peculiar to the Mercury Theatre's presentation.
3: This answer, by Wells, the day after his performance of The War of the Worlds, was another performance. Wells was 23 years old. He enjoyed a wide reputation for his stage and radio performances, including The March of Time and As the Shadow. Earlier in the year, CBS Radio invited him to launch and direct his own weekly radio show, The Mercury Theater on the Air. The first broadcast was an adaptation of Bram Stoker's Dracula in July. Now, the morning after the War of the Worlds had stunned radio listeners, the press demanded explanations. At that moment, Orson Welles was internationally famous. He wanted to stay that way. And so his answers were vague, non-committal, and meant to portray himself as the shocked victim of unexpected outcomes from his radio storytelling. But listen again to what Wells said. I'm terribly shocked by the effect it's had. I do not
5: believe that the method is original with me or, or peculiar to the Mercury Theatre's presentation.
3: Was Wells saying that other radio programs used unusual approaches to propel their narratives? Could Wells have been influenced by other programs as he prepared his radio performance? We'll explore answers in this episode of Reimagined Radio The War of the Worlds Possible Influences. The War of the Worlds, directed by and starring Orson Welles, was heard live across the country on Halloween Eve, 1938. Thousands of listeners believed they were hearing events as they unfolded.
0: Scholars throughout the Southeast are reporting a planet struck in New Jersey with monsters, and anywhere from 40 to 7,000 people
5: were killed. One telephone caller said she had loaded all her children in the car and filled it with gasoline and was going somewhere. Where was it safe? She wanted to know.
0: A man returned home in the midst of the broadcast and found his wife with a bottle of poison in her hand screaming, quote, I'd rather die this way than like that.
1: Yeah, Marion Thoregard, here to divorce Hilsa Thoregard, collapsed, fearing his wife and children in New York had been killed. Upon reviving, he
0: immediately started east in hope of aiding the wife he was here to divorce.
5: One woman declared she could see the fire and told the Boston Globe
1: she and others in her neighborhood were getting out of here.
5: A woman ran into the Methodist Church screaming, New York is destroyed, it's the end of the world, you might as well go home and die. I just heard it on the radio.
1: i College students fainted. Panic gripped
0: the campus for half an hour, with many students fighting for telephones to inform their parents to come and get them.
1: Los Angeles, Salt Lake City, Beaumont, Texas, and St. Joseph, Missouri reported meteors landing nearby.
0: An offer to volunteer in stopping an invasion from Mars came among hundreds of telephone inquiries to police and newspapers. One excited man shouted, my God, where can I volunteer my services? We've got to stop this awful thing.
1: The lights went
0: out in more than 1,000 homes due to electrical failure. Many thought, however,
5: Martians had reached Washington state. Men and women prepared to take their families into the mountains. Telephone callers report they are praying.
3: Why did so many people believe what they heard on the radio was real? In making his radio adaptation, Wells used radio's ability to engage listeners through sounds. If the voices and sounds were believable, then the story would be real. Listeners would consider themselves present in the story, on location, at the time of its happening. To increase the sense of immediacy, wells changed the location from england to new jersey and surrounding areas and used the ability of radio to bring sounds from different distant locations to tell the story from different perspectives using different voices for example the first location change happens as the story begins
7: good evening ladies and gentlemen from the meridian room in the park plaza hotel in new york city we bring you the music of raymond raquello and his orchestra the touch of the Spanish, Raymond Raquello leads off with La Campesita.
3: In that excerpt, the change of location to the Meridian Room sounds realistic and listeners could easily believe they were being transported through space and time to another location. But the music of Ramon Raquello and his orchestra was actually performed live by the CBS Studio Orchestra under the direction of Bernard Herman. Another news announcement interrupted the performance of Ramon Raquello and took listeners back to the broadcast studio. For additional information,
0: ladies and gentlemen, we interrupt our program of dance music to bring you a special bulletin from the Intercontinental Radio News. At 20 minutes before 8 central time, Professor Farrell of the Mount Jennings Observatory, Chicago, Illinois, reports observing several explosions of incandescent gas occurring at regular intervals on the planet Mars. The spectroscope indicates the gas to be
7: hydrogen and moving toward the Earth with enormous velocity. Professor Pearson of the observatory at Princeton confirms Farrell's observation and describes the phenomenon as, quote, like a jet of blue flame shot from a gun, unquote. We now return you to the music of Ramon Raquello playing for you in the meridian room of the Park Plaza Hotel situated in downtown New
3: York. Throughout September 1938, American radio had used news announcements to update listeners about ominous events in Nazi Germany. Adolf Hitler was calling for the annexation of Austria and the autonomy of the Sudetenland, an area along the Czechoslovakia border. Primarily through the efforts of radio announcer H.V. Kaltenborn, listeners were kept up to date on each new negotiation between Hitler and other world leaders. On October 3rd, Nazi troops had occupied the entire Sudetenland. The shadow of world war was in the air and on the air. Wells knew that such break-in news announcements provided opportunities to introduce different perspectives and narrators, not just radio announcers, but also eyewitnesses. As a result, the story could become more engaging, more immersive, more believable especially if the listening audience was already feeling uncomfortable, uncertain. And so, more bulletins followed. One asked observatories around the country to keep watch for unusual activity on the surface of the planet Mars. Another teased an upcoming interview with Professor Pearson at the Princeton Observatory. That interview itself was interrupted by a news bulletin read to the audience by reporter Carl Phillips. Ladies and gentlemen, I shall read you a wire addressed to Professor Pearson from Dr. Gray of the Natural
6: History Museum, New York. Quote nine fifteen PM Eastern Standard Time. Seismograph registered shock of almost earthquake intensity occurring
3: within a radius of twenty miles of Princeton. Please investigate. Signed Lloyd Gray, Chief of Astronomical Division. From this point, the story proceeds as a series of on-location reports. Grover's Mill, New Jersey, the Washtung Mountains, the New Jersey State Capitol in Trenton, the nation's capital in Washington, D.C., for an address by the Secretary of the Interior, and finally to New York City, where humankind is defeated by Martian fighting machines. As a result of all this movement, not only in location but also narration, the story becomes many-faceted, multi-layered, complex, and compelling, the different voices, sounds, and locations sparking our imaginations. The ending of the first part of the War of the Worlds, a lone voice calling out on the radio waves, offers hope of finding another voice and starting anew. 2X2L
6: calling, say, kill. 2X2L calling, say, kill.
7: 2X2L calling CQ New York. Isn't there anyone on the air?
0: Isn't there anyone on the air? Isn't there
7: anyone? 2X2L.
3: we know that wells's use of news bulletins was purposeful part of his narrative technique frank brady the wells biographer and author of citizen wells says wells told howard e coke just 6 days before the broadcast to quote modernize the language and dialogue of the current working script to localize the action and to dramatize the story in the form of radio news bulletins end quote A possible inspiration for this approach may have come from Archibald MacLeish, who used radio announcers as narrators in his two radio plays. Wells was involved with both productions, as we will hear in a moment. This is Reimagined Radio. In this episode, we are celebrating the legendary radio story, The War of the Worlds by Orson Welles and the Mercury Theatre on the Air. Rather than retelling this story, we are examining possible influences and presenting some new information. Orson Welles began his radio career in 1935 with uncredited appearances on the March of Time a weekly documentary news program sponsored by Time magazine. Each episode of the March of Time was structured as a news report, live and at the location of the historical event. Veteran CBS news announcers narrated the episodes. Skilled voice actors mimicked dialects and voice patterns of famous individuals. Through the March of Time, Wells met Archibald MacLeish, lawyer, Pulitzer Prize-winning poet, and congressional librarian who was writing radio plays through observing productions for the march of time series McCleish was inspired to use radio reporters as major narrators and he was inspired to use wells for his voice and acting talents mcleish's first radio play the fall of the city was broadcast 11 april 1937 as an episode of the cbs experimental radio storytelling series The Columbia Workshop. The play was set as a radio broadcast. Wells voiced the role of the announcer who described everything he saw and heard in the central plaza of an unnamed city where thousands of citizens awaited the arrival of an unnamed dictator. Inspired in part by the growing fascism in Germany and Italy just before the start of World War II, the fall of the city was very successful for both McLeish and Wells. Today, the fall of the city is often cited as the best example of the artistic potential of radio broadcasting in terms of both stylistic innovation and social power. McLeish's second radio play was Air Raid. It was broadcast on the Columbia Workshop 27 October 1938, just three days before the War of the Worlds. There are connections with Wells, as we will see soon. But first, let's listen to this excerpt from Air Raid by Archibald MacLeish.
7: You are 28 miles from the the border. You are up on top of a town on a kind of tenement. You are staring out the eastward toward the sun. We have seen nothing and heard nothing. If they left at dawn, we should have heard them. We have seen nothing at all. We have heard nothing. The town is very quiet and orderly. There's the sirens, the signal. They've picked them up at the border. Listen, we hear them. We can't see them. We hear the shearing metal. We hear the tearing air. They are many. Hard to guess how many. We've got them now. We see them. They're out of the dazzle. They're flying fighting formation and columns. Squadrons following squadrons, 10, 15 squadrons, farming models, mostly. big ones, three motors. All those over. They're changing formations. They're banking. The whole plane is banking. Some squeezing to flight Flight anchored and climbing. Climbing bank the line. The line swung like a lariat. They're waving round for the town, they turn like stones on a string, they swing like steel in a groove, they move like tools, not men, you say there were no men, you say they had no will but the will of motor or metal, they swing, the wing dip, there's the signal, the dip. they'll dive, they're ready to dive, they're steady, they're heading down, they're dead on the town, they're nosing, they're easing over, they're over, there
3: they go! Inspired by the 1937 bombing of Guernica, Spain by Nazi-German airplanes during the Spanish Civil War, Archibald MacLeish worked on Air Raid seven months prior to its debut. As he did for the fall of the city, MacLeish wanted Orson Welles to read the part of the location reporter. But Welles declined. However, a photograph shows Welles talking with writer MacLeish, actor Ray Collins, and director William N. Robeson, during a rehearsal for Air Raid. What does all this mean? Well, we can point to Wells using reporter Carl Phillips as a major narrator for his adaptation of The War of the Worlds and suggest Wells drew inspiration from his direct experience with both The Fall of the City and Air Raid by Archibald MacLeish. Surely these experiences gave Wells ideas about what was possible with the new medium of radio then just a decade old. And possibly, they influenced his production of The War of the Worlds. You are listening to Reimagined Radio. Our episode is The War of the Worlds, Possible Influences. We are exploring radio stories and storytelling techniques that may have influenced the production of The War of the Worlds by Orson Welles in 1938. this is john barber producer and host we'll return to our episode in just a moment but first i want to tell you about the fuse box show it's a different kind of radio storytelling also brought to you by kxrw fm vancouver's community radio station here's a sample
0: fuse i'm just going to admit this right out this next piece is here because it just irritated the crap out of me. Well, that's a good start. Are are you suing me? <laughs> Cancelled. I think I just got sued by a Japanese pocket squirrel. Representative from Georgia.
4: North Georgia.
0: Yeah, like how far north? Pluto. Catch Fusebox box the first Wednesday of the month at twelve thirty p.m. here on
3: KXRW ninety nine point nine. As you heard, the cast is colorful. The sound design and voice acting shows real talents at work doing things the rest of us mortals dream about. And the way Fusebox responds to the things that supposedly smart people do that are anything but, well, with Fusebox, you can feel the indignation coming through your radio. Learn more wherever you get your podcasts or at the Fusebox Show website, www.thefuseboxshow.com. Com. This is Reimagined Radio, and we are exploring possible influences on the production of The War of the Worlds by Orson Welles and the Mercury Theater on the Air. This is John Barber, producer and host. Earlier, we learned that Orson Welles asked scriptwriter Howard E. Koch to make significant changes to the radio adaptation of The War of the Worlds the 1898 novel by H.G. Wells, just six days before broadcast. We also learned of Wells' involvement in two radio plays by Archibald MacLeish, The Fall of the City and Air Raid. Now, here's something new. Wells worked close to deadlines. In this recording, Orson Wells tells film director Peter Bogdanovich about his production schedule for episodes of the Mercury Theater on the air.
2: Because I only race one day for the shows. And all, of, all the technical side was worked out before and then I revised it mm-hmm. to everybody's irritation dramatically and all that and put their backs up every week. Yeah, yeah That's no good, let's do it another way You know all that. Yeah, but that's the way you used to do all the shows. You, they'd get it ready and then you'd come in and... They did a recording of the show oh, which- with a skeleton cast of cheap actors and the sound effects in the script. And I would sometimes listen to it and always read their script, and I had four days until airtime to rewrite it or get another writer, everything, and go again. And that was the way it went. But the actual recording was done? Uh, there was never a It was I mean, live. live yeah. But the preparation took one day. Uh, the, That's right. It was with a the short all the day, actors. In a Short day, yeah. About five or six hours.
3: That was Orson Welles describing rehearsing performances by the Mercury Theater on the Air only once before they were performed for live broadcast. Welles was familiar with Air Raid months earlier, and he heard the broadcast on 27 October 1938, just three days before his own broadcast of the War of the Worlds. Given his production schedule, there would have been time and opportunity to make changes. With even more time before broadcast, Wells could have incorporated more influences. The Crimson Wizard was broadcast weekly beginning in September 1938, a month before Wells's own The War of the Worlds broadcast.
2: All squads, all squads, calling all squads the Secret Service. All
0: squads, the Naval Archives building, robbers, Proceed to the Archives Building and protect priceless naval records. Block the roads leading from the city. Stop and question suspicious motorists. It's the Red Circle. Communist spies. There's a Red Circle spy in every street.
3: Broadcast on WGN Chicago, Illinois, every Friday beginning 30 September 1938. Episodes of The Crimson Wizard were extensively transcribed in the Color Graphics section of the Sunday Tribune. Episodes featured the brilliant hunchback scientist Peter Quill, using his scientific ingenuity to defend America against a communist spy ring, the Red Circle. No recordings of The Crimson Wizard are known to exist. We used the transcription of the first episode to create the sample you just heard. Notice that it featured a kind of a break-in news bulletin. What does this mean? Perhaps nothing. There is no direct evidence that Wells was influenced in any way by the Crimson Wizard radio series in producing his own adaptation of The War of the Worlds. But it's possible that he knew of this radio drama series, which would have hinted again at the potential for different approaches to radio storytelling.
1: Well, I was in
5: Europe at the time that Schuschnigg was murdered, and I remember very vividly the time, the way that came through the air. I should say that your presentation last night was even more dramatic and more realistic than the way the the Vienna, the Vienna radio station did theirs. Yes, the attention. So in, view of that, in view of that, don't you think that somebody here would have been able to gauge the reaction, which in fact has occurred throughout the United States? Well, every radio program tries to be more dramatic than life, as every play tries to be more dramatic than life in every movie, not less so. I would have been surprised if, if uh, and, and, and hurt, as anybody would, if they'd been told that a presentation was less effective than life.
3: The radio show described by the reporter was The Minister is Murdered by Eric Ebermeyer. Directed by Hans Fleisch, the program was broadcast from Berlin at 8 p.m., 25 September 1930. According to newspaper reports... Soon after its beginning, the minister is murdered was interrupted by a break-in news bulletin about the assassination of the German foreign minister returning from a visit abroad.
7: Achtung! Achtung! Attention! Attention! Berlin and Königsvosterhosen calling! Just moments ago, the Reich's foreign secretary was murdered as he arrived at Friedrichstrasse Railroad Station upon his arrival from the Geneva Conference. We are discontinuing
3: our evening performance. Ebermeyer based his fictional radio drama on the real-life murder of Foreign Minister Walter Rattenau in 1922 by right-wing extremists shortly after a treaty signing with the Soviet Union. Listeners were confused. They thought then-current Foreign Minister Julius Curtis, who had attended a conference in Geneva, had just been murdered. The radio news bulletin seemed credible especially since Adolf Hitler testifying that same day before the Supreme Court in Leipzig promised retribution for sanctions placed on Germany at the end of World War I, November 1918. Was a right-wing coup underway? The minister is murdered was condemned in German newspapers
2: this grotesque nonsense.
7: Did anyone consider how much greater these risks are in our day and age, which is full of
5: mindlessly distributed rumors about coups and crises? Leaving aside the terrible
7: lack of taste that rests in embedding these kinds of announcements in a radio play, did anyone actually bother to consider the potential consequences of having
3: fragments of news like this picked up in other countries? The story by the Associated Press about the minister is murdered was repeated in several international and American newspapers, including the New York Times.
7: This is the New York Times reporting. Several thousand radio listeners were recovering this forenoon from hearing what for a time they thought was a radio report that Foreign Minister Julius Curtis had been assassinated. Actually, what they heard was only a radio drama entitled The Minister is Murdered. In the course of which the radio announcer, the make-believe one in the play, interrupts a concert to announce excitedly that the German foreign minister has just been assassinated in the Friedrichstrasse railway station. The German Foreign Office, other government departments, and the principal newspaper offices were unable to cope with the overwhelming number of telephone calls from concerned citizens. The minister of the interior joseph worth began an investigation to determine who was responsible for putting such a radio play on the air at a time of political tension in germany
3: well how might this information add to our story wells lived and worked in new york city at the time the broadcast of the minister is murdered and how it was interrupted by a break-in news announcement was reported there although there is no record that he knew anything about this broadcast or that it influenced in any way his narrative technique, Wells could have been aware of the broadcast of The Minister is Murdered and its audience response as he produced his own radio adaptation of The War of the Worlds. This is John Barber, producer and host of Reimagined Radio. With each episode, we combine voices, Sound effects and music to spark your imagination.
0: Answer me, who
1: is this? Do you realize you're driving me crazy? Who's calling me? What are you doing it for? Now stop it! Stop it!
4: Stop it! it. Smoke comes out, black smoke drifting over the city. People in the streets see it now, people trying to run away from it, but it's no use. They're falling like flies. Then something went wrong with the car. It stole right on the tracks. The train was coming closer. I could hear its bell, its cry, its whistle crying. Still, he stood there. Now I knew that he was beckoning me, beckoning me to my death.
0: Reimagined Radio, nothing to see,
3: everything to hear. Upcoming episodes of Reimagined Radio include next month's Hearing Voices, three oral histories retrieved from the Clark County Historical Museum. In December, we are planning a reprise of our traditional holiday offering, A Radio Christmas Carol. For 2023, we are working on more examples of radio storytelling, each with a common theme of discovery. Each will be brought to you by KXRW-FM, Vancouver's community radio station. Join us each month for more interesting radio storytelling. You are listening to Reimagined Radio. We're exploring possible influences on the production of The War of the Worlds by Orson Wells and the Mercury Theater on the Air, first broadcast October 1938, and now the most legendary radio story ever told. I'm John Barber, producer and host. Thanks for listening. So far, we have explored Wells' connection to Archibald MacLeish, author of two radio plays, The Fall of the City and Air Raid. Wells had a speaking role in the first and was involved in the production of the second. We considered two other radio plays, The Crimson Wizard and The Minister is Murdered, and how they might have influenced Wells' production of The War of the Worlds. There is one more radio drama we should consider. It was broadcast 12 years prior, on a snowy Saturday night, 16 January 1926, by BBC Radio. Listeners throughout Great Britain tuned in a program called Broadcasting the Barricades, written by Father Ronald Arbuthnot Knox, an English theologian, Catholic priest, and mystery writer. His Ronald Knox's Ten Commandments, written in 1935, are still used as reference by contemporary mystery writers. Broadcasting the Barricades originated in Edinburgh, Scotland, from Station 2EH, in a room at the back of a music shop and was relayed throughout the United Kingdom by Station 2LO in London. Father Knox wrote and announced the program, which consisted of news bulletins about a variety of subjects. Cricket matches, an unemployed demonstration in Trafalgar Square led by Mr. Poppleberry, Secretary of the National Movement for Abolishing Theater Cues, the arrival in Southampton of famous American film actress Miss Joy Gush, The Destruction of the Big Ben Clock Tower, The Hanging of Mr. Watherspoon, Minister of Traffic, and The Destruction by Explosion of the Savoy Hotel. No recording of the original broadcast was made, but the script was reprinted in several newspapers the next day. Father Knox included the script as a forgotten interlude in his book Essays and Satire, published in 1928. Immediately following broadcasting the barricades, telephones rang out at BBC headquarters, the Savoy Hotel, and the police station. Callers wanted to know whether what they had just heard on the radio was true. Were Big Ben and the Savoy Hotel destroyed? How could such a broadcast be allowed in England? Why wasn't there more explanation that the program was a work of fiction? How could the BBC so grossly misunderstand what its listeners wanted to hear? How could listeners know whether news heard on the radio was genuine or not? Debates continued for months. The controversy passed, and Father Knox was heard again on BBC Radio this time parroting a scientific talk.
0: Illustrating the sounds, now made audible to the learned of vegetables in pain.
3: You're listening to Reimagined Radio. We're celebrating the legendary radio story, The War of the Worlds by Orson Welles and the Mercury Theatre on the Air. Rather than retelling this story, we are examining possible influences and presenting some new information. Let's review. First, we considered Wells's use of news bulletins as a major storytelling technique for the War of the Worlds. This was purposeful. News bulletins provide multiple voices and perspectives. As a result, the story becomes many-faceted, multi-layered, complex and compelling from the different voices, sounds and locations that spark our imaginations. We explored a possible source for this practice and Wells' involvement with the March of Time, a weekly documentary news program. Each episode was structured as a news report, live and at the location of an historical event. Through the March of Time, Wells met Archibald MacLeish, a Pulitzer Prize-winning poet and congressional librarian who was writing radio plays. The Fall of the City was set as a radio broadcast. Wells, as the announcer, described what he saw and heard in the central plaza of an unnamed city where thousands of citizens awaited the arrival of an unnamed dictator. McLeish's second radio play was Air Raid. Wells was offered the part of the radio reporter, witnessing the bombing of a town during the Spanish Civil War by Nazi Germany aircraft, but did not accept the offer. He was nonetheless very aware of this radio play. From these sources, we can suggest Wells drew potential inspiration for his use of radio reporter Carl Phillips as one narrator for the War of the Worlds. Other narrators, other voices, other perspectives were provided by several break-in news announcements. We also learned of three other radio plays, The Crimson Wizard, The Minister is Murdered, and Broadcasting the Barricades, that could have influenced Orson Welles' adaptation of The War of the Worlds. Which one do you think is the winner? Welles provided the answer in a recorded conversation with film director Peter Bogdanovich.
2: I got the idea from a BBC show that had gone on the year before when a Catholic priest told how some communists had seized London. And a lot of people in London believed it. And I thought that'd be fun to do on a big scale. Let's have it from the outer space. That was how I got the idea. I didn't
3: know that. Yeah. The BBC show Wells cites was broadcasting the barricades. And as we have heard, it was broadcast not the year before, as Wells claimed, but 12 years prior to his adaptation of the War of the Worlds. Wells is also confused about... Quote, having it from outer space. That plotline comes from the 1898 H.G. Wells novel, The War of the Worlds, that Wells and others adapted for their Mercury Theater performance. By the way, the novel is one of the earliest to examine conflict between humans and extraterrestrials. You're listening to Reimagined Radio, our The War of the Worlds Possible Influences episode. Concluding remarks are next, but first, this request for your support. Hello, everyone. John Barber here, producer and host of Reimagined Radio, to encourage your support of KXRW-FM, Vancouver's community radio station. You might not know it, but KXRW operates entirely on local support. Local support for community radio provides not only local programs, but also benefits the local economy and culture in which we live. Support for local community radio builds something that benefits everyone. If you already support community radio, thank you for your generosity. If not, please contact KXRW-FM or your community radio station wherever you listen to this program and learn how to support their efforts. Thank you for your support. This is Reimagined Radio. Our episode is The War of the Worlds, Possible Influences. The morning after Orson Welles's radio adaptation of The War of the Worlds was broadcast, concern and outrage, along with threats of lawsuits and possible regulations, were building in the national press and government. Reporters and photographers gathered in the CBS building in New York. They wanted answers. Welles portrayed himself as innocent. I simply don't
5: know. I can't imagine. I mean, I, uh, you must realize that I, when I left the broadcast last night, I went into a uh, dress rehearsal for a play that's opening in two days, and I've had almost no sleep, and I, I know less about this than you do. I haven't read the paper. You were you aware of terror at the time you were giving this role? Were you aware that terror was going on throughout oh, no. the nation? Oh, no, of course not. You know, we did Dracula, and uh, I had every hope that, uh, that the people would be excited as they would be at a melodrama.
3: Over time, Wells was more forthcoming. For example on 19 june 1955 during the fifth episode of the orson wells sketchbook television show entitled the war of the worlds wells reflected on quote our little experiment with radio
4: i suppose we had it coming to us because in fact we weren't as innocent as we meant to be when we did the martian broadcast we were fed up with the way in which Everything that came over this new magic box, the radio, was being swallowed. People, you know, do suspect what they read in the newspapers and what people tell them, but when the radio came, and I suppose now television, anything that came through that new machine was believed. So in a way, our, our broadcast was an assault on the uh, credibility of that machine. We wanted people to understand that they shouldn't take any opinion pre-digested and they shouldn't swallow everything that came through the tap, whether it was radio or not.
3: In another sample from the Wells-Bogdanovich conversations, film director Peter Bogdanovich asked Wells about the effect of his The War of the Worlds radio broadcast. Well, Did you know it would have that kind of effect?
2: Only the size was a surprise. My idea was was to send a lot of the lunatic fringe out I just didn't know how widespread the fringe was. You mean how little, how it wasn't a fringe? Yeah. In a 1 May
3: 1975 interview with Thomas James Tom Snyder, host of The Tomorrow Show, a late night television talk show on the NBC television network, Wells said...
2: There are pictures of me made that about three hours afterwards looking as much as I could like, like an early Christian saint. I didn't know what I was doing. But uh, I'm afraid that not as (laughs) hypocritical as anybody could possibly get.
3: From the Bogdanovich-Wells conversations, we have this interesting remark by Wells about a good moment in his production of The War of the Worlds. It it had good
2: things, The, the technical use of silence I think was very effective when we said in the middle of it, you know, is there anybody on the air? That was great. Is there anybody on the air? Big pause, is there any? Yeah. And just great. left it, you know, I was all right.
3: Yeah. We hope you won't mind, and in fact, we'll enjoy hearing again what we consider the best part of this story, the final confrontation between humans and Martians. The lead up to the moment Wells thought was good, that last cry of humanity seeking another survivor. Enjoy as you listen now to this sample from our 2021 reimagined radio version of The War of the Worlds.
4: Oh, they're lifting their metal hands. Vancouver, Vancouver, this is it. This is the end now. Smoke comes out, black smoke drifting over the city. People in the streets see it now. People trying to run away from it, but it's no use. They're falling like flies. The smoke surrounding the base of Smith Tower rising 100 yards away.
1: calling CQ. Is there anyone on the air?
0: Is, is there anyone?
3: Reimagined Radio is produced with support from KXRW-FM, Vancouver, Washington's community radio station. Content curation and script by John Barber. Music composition and post-production by Mark Rose. Graphic design by Catherine Klaus. Our announcer is Jack Armstrong. This is John Barber, producer and host. Thanks again for listening. Now, before closing, we promised you the chance to hear the H.G. Wells and Orson Welles conversation we introduced at the beginning of our program. Here it is now.
0: Could I interest you, gentlemen, in a discussion of Mr. Orson Welles' broadcast of Mr. H.G. Wells' book, The War of the Worlds?
6: Are you turning the meeting over to us, sir? I am for the moment. <laughs> <laughs> He's turning it over to us. Well, I've had uh, uh, a series of the most delightful experiences to, since I came to America. But the best thing that has happened so far is meeting my little namesake here, Orson. I find him the most delightful uh, uh, carrier. He carries my name and an extra E that I hope he'll drop sooner or later. (laughs) See, no sense in it. And uh, I've uh, known his work before he made this sensational Halloween uh, spree (laughs) <laughs> Are you sure there was such a panic in America, or wasn't it your Halloween fun?
4: <laughs> I think that's the nicest thing that, a, mm. that a, a, a man from England could possibly say about the men from Mars. Well, uh, uh, Mr. Hitler made a good deal of sport of it, you know, and spo- actually spoke of it in the great Munich speech, you know. Mm. And there were floats um, in Nazi parade.
6: There wasn't to say. That's actually. right. <laughs> 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 <laughs>
4: not <doesn't laughs> much else to say. Mm. And it's supposed to show the corrupt condition and decadent... Uh, uh, state of affairs in democracies that the war of the world went over as well as it did. I I think it's very nice of Mr. Wells to say that uh, not only I didn't mean it, but the American people didn't mean it.
6: That was our impression in England. We had articles about it and people said, have you never heard of Halloween in America when everybody pretends to see ghosts? (laughs) Mm.
0: Well, the... uh, there was some excitement caused. I uh, really can't uh, belittle the amount that was caused, but I think that the people uh,
4: got over it very quickly. don't What you kind see. of excitement? Mr. H.G. Wells wants to know if the excitement wasn't the same kind of excitement that we extract from uh, a practical joke in which somebody puts a sheet over his head and says, boo, I don't think anybody believes that that individual is a ghost, but we do scream and yell and, and rush down the hall. Um, and that's just about what happened. That's, that's
0: a very excellent description.
6: You want. You to quite serious in America yet. <laughs> you haven't got the war right under your uh, chins, and the consequences you can still uh, play with ideas of terror and conflict. you think that's good or bad? It's a natural thing to do until you're right up against it.
0: So it ceases to be a game?
6: And then it ceases to be a game.
0: Now, uh, here's a thought. Some of Mr. H.G. Wells' writings are termed fantastic, and a few years ago, well, might they have been conceived such? The shape of things to come which told of a long Indonesian war was such a fantasy. But, Mr. Orson Wells, do you think that it's so fantastic in view of today's events?
4: It certainly is not so fantastic, and the, the one question that Mr. Mr. Wells has uh, spoken of not only in the shape of things to come, but has uh, hinted at or directly prophesied a uh, such a state of affairs following a, uh, a wasting war and a return to a feudalism from which uh, the world would find itself again. And uh, today in Mr. Wells's lecture, he said uh, quite the most interesting thing that uh, uh, I've heard in a long time. He said that he commenced just recently to ask himself if there was any reason why mankind should so... Uh, uh, emulate the phoenix, and should so uh, get itself out of uh, its mess. He proposed a couple of, uh, of uh, solutions, but he did admit that there, that there was a possible excuse for a gloomy point of view, mm-hmm. and that it would be good to be realistic about it and not to uh, dismiss the gloomy point of view anymore. Perhaps uh, uh, the time had come to look ahead since the future... Uh, Mr. Wells's future, which we've always adored and never uh, really understood, is suddenly upon us, mm-hmm. and we are living right now in that uh, famous H. G. Wells future, which we all knew about.
6: Now, before we get away from this microphone, tell me about this film of yours that you've been producing. Uh, you're a producer, aren't you? You're That's right. Art director, you're everything. Mr. Wells. What's the film called?
4: It's called Citizen Kane.
6: Citizen Kane, yes. is Not C A I N.
4: No, K A N E. And this Kane. is, of course, the kindest and ah, yes. most gracious possible thing to do. Mr. Wells is uh, making it possible for me to do what in America is spoken of as a plug. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> he understands. Do this they? Fine old to, I costume. don't
6: understand <laughs> these <is> words.
4: Yes. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you understand the, uh, uh, the value, however. Mr. Wells wants me to tell you that. Uh, I have made a motion picture, and he is kind enough to ask me a leading question concerning it. I am
6: looking forward to it.
4: Very kind, sir. It's it's a new sort of motion picture with a new uh, method of presentation and a few new uh, technical uh, uh, experiments, a few new... New uh, methods of telling a picture, well, not only from the point of view of writing, but of showing it.
6: If I don't uh, misunderstand you completely, I think there'll be a lot of jolly good new noises in it. <laughs> 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 <What is> it?
4: <laughs> <laughs> I hope so. Uh, I think mean, uh, a jolly good new noises are what uh, the motion pictures could, uh, could uh, well afford these days. I, I hope you're right, and I hope there are some jolly good new noises. I can think of nothing more desirable than
1: motion pictures. I'm <laughs> New noises. This has been a production of Reimagined Radio. Our radio broadcasts are heard on local, regional, and international community radio stations. For on-demand streaming, point your browsers to our website, Reimagined Radio. that's all one word, no punctuation, dot net. While you're there, subscribe to our snappy email program guide. Thank you so much for listening. And please join us again for another episode of Reimagined Radio, where we'll continue our exploration of radio storytelling. You're tuned into Monday Matinee on the Mutual Audio Network. Tomorrow is all things horror on Tuesday Terrors. Subscribe to the full Mutual Audio Network feed for every day. Or find Tuesday Terrors in your favorite podcast players. The Mutual Audio Network. Listening and imagining together.